Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is an organization working to engage people across community and societal differences, often differences involving power structures that can leave one group feeling left out or marginalized. Civity is also a concept, a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with those who are different. In this episode, we welcome Marnita Schradel, CEO of Marnita's Table and Lauren Williams, Marnita's Table's training manager and executive administrator. Marnita's Table has been working in communities in and around Minneapolis, Minnesota, as well as communities across the country and around the world to authentically connect people across difference, challenge people to have honest conversations, and achieve equity. Marnita and Lauren, welcome. You do work in the community, and your community is hurting today. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on and how you're doing. We have been convening a series of conversations and have been having these deep conversations about what does it mean to build a healthy and well community on behalf of um, 17 philanthropies. And so at, at this time with COVID, um, seeing it really wipe through neighborhoods, particularly black and brown communities, um, people who are vulnerable, and waking up to the news um, of George Floyd being killed, seeing what happened at Capitals with white people going and protesting, having to wear a mask and wearing guns on them. And seeing and knowing my friends, I, I'm about 30 blocks, would you say, Lauren, 20, 30? I'm not that far either. We both live in South Minneapolis. I have a, a son who's black and 26. I'm exhausted. I didn't sleep well. You know, it takes a toll on your body. It takes a toll on your heart. And to see the responses from certain segments of the population. We have friends now that have concussions. The police were firing live rounds during a protest, a peaceful protest. My understanding is, you know, a person threw a rock or something, but it was not, I don't know, I, I think a teenager throwing a rock and people walking around with semi-automatic weapons, which looks more threatening, you know, so it, it becomes exhausting. I felt like my local police had the obligation to come out and stand with us and say, we will, this will not stand. This is not okay. That they, they had an opportunity. And so it's hurtful. And Lauren, um, how are you doing? It's interesting to be in a position and often those who, who do hold space for community, they are also from those communities themselves. And so it's that duality of your identity having to and wanting to um, and having the responsibility to make space and, and make sure that you're still holding a comfortable place for people to come and express however they're feeling, but then also having your own emotions that you have to manage. I was not anticipating how emotional I would, I would get when this actually happened to my own neighborhood, right? And I see it around the country all the time. And then when it happens to you, it feels a little bit different. One of the things I saw on my way driving home was peaceful protesters. I saw families and children and it was so diverse and so beautiful. And I don't know if everybody gets a chance to see that on our television, which makes me sad. Um, in this community, it's been a diverse mixed community for generations because I think it was 38th Street and 42nd Street and 46th Street. Those were the dividing lines where people could live if you were black or, or white. And so historically it has been a very mixed community. 
Um, so I feel like it hurts even deeper because we've been working on being together for so long, for so many generations. And Marnita's Table has been doing a lot of that work to help people in the community find a voice and connect and talk a little bit about how they want to engage with the community. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the work you've been doing and what that means to you in light of what happened, how you want to move forward. It's important to understand even where the where the roots of Marnita's Table comes from. I am 58 years old now, and I was in three homes before I was three years old. Um, when I was born in 1962, my body was evidence of a felony in 17 states based on the anti-miscegenation laws of my country. And I like to point this out because at a time when we're talking about something like crime or police presence in a community, so many people do not know the history of our country. They actually don't know that um, you know, things like vagrancy laws were created simply to stop Black people to see if they had a dollar, and they were never meted out against white people. Um, Lauren was just talking about the 38th Street Bridge, where they separated the white neighborhood from the Black neighborhood. We actually have a, a series of events called Building Bridges and Breaking Bread, and we actually go to places in our country that were where the federal highway system was put in intentionally to segregate white and black neighborhoods. So we do very symbolic events, hundreds of people. Everything we do is an equity model. So we are not a charity model and we are not a model about like, oh, we're gonna have a fluffy dinner party. Our model is all about making sure that people who have been marginalized and left outside decision-making and resource sharing are automatically included and valued at the policymaking and resource sharing table. So we don't do a bunch of things with a bunch of volunteer help. I was white on my birth certificate and at seven months, clearly I'm not white. At seven months, my melanin came in. My biological mother and grandmother who were white decided in 1962 that it was not a great thing to have a black child and didn't want anybody to know. So they put me into the foster care system. And I ended up with an Irish German conservative Catholic family in the Pacific Northwest, growing up in a town that was, um, I was the only black person in the town, and its claim to fame was it had the largest population of Ku Klux Klan west of the Mississippi. Um, and that's where I grew up in third grade. I lost all my hair. Um, I left home at age 16 with $5. By then I'd already attempted suicide four times. And I said that um, if anybody came to my door, and wanted a seat at my table, I would not turn them away. I didn't want anybody to feel unwelcome. And I always had kind of a private love of neuroscience, of how things worked, how people's brains worked, how they made them fearful or not fearful. And many years ago, I went on to be a senior executive in corporate communications and media relations. I was sitting at, at Target Corp with a, a group of senior brand leaders, and they were talking about, have you ever been to a Target store, by the way? Oh, yeah. Did you spend more than you planned to spend, Gina? Of course. I went in for one thing. Okay, so they know that, by the way. They know on average you are there for one thing, a bag of kitty litter, tampons, whatever. I mean, like you're there to get like your thing, right? Right. And you're there and you get the thing. They said on average a person went in to spend $9 and how they moved them through the space. Um, and the sight sounds, the experience, the engineered experience on average a person spent Want to make a guess what they spent? For me, it's like fifty to seventy-five dollars. I'd say fifty. Well, they actually said it was ninety. No, so it was 
10 times. So if you went in to spend $15, they spent 150. If you went in to spend nine, you spent 90. Wow. That isn't true for everybody, but think about that, right? At the time I was a senior leader and I worked in corporate America and I was always the only woman in the room and the only black person in the room. And so white men would turn to me and say egregiously racist things like, well, Marnita, we'd hire more black people if they were all like you. And the sad thing is I'm 58 and Lauren is 26. So for Lauren to know that that stuff happens means that we haven't moved far enough from the days, right? Like we haven't progressed beyond that. There was all this, you know, anti-racism training, white privilege training. And I watched white senior executives go into a room, lean back, cross their arms, and their brains were shutting down. You'd say the word privilege, their brains would shut down. They wouldn't see anything about the laws that were erected. They would see, you thought they didn't work hard. And even using the term white privilege wasn't very effective because, in fact, we weren't arguing to take away their privileges. We wanted the same privileges, right? So it shouldn't be privilege. It should be normalcy, like white normalcy. Like, right. That's what I want. I'm not looking for privilege. I'm looking for what a white person can take for granted. Right. Having this little toolkit around experience engineering, I wondered, was it possible? Could you take a room of people who may not know each other and compose a room in such a way, if Target can extract wealth from you, when most of us would say we're good stewards of our financial resources, and most of us don't like the idea that we are racist, I wonder if it might be easier to extract the preconceived notion of the other from your mind. Yeah. Right? That was a, a kind of a new way of looking at it. You also say radical hospitality. You use the word intentional, making the invisible visible. I, these really powerful and very targeted and specific phraseology to help define what you do. And talk to me a little bit about why it was so important to get the language so precise and how that's helped drive the work. Yeah, well, Marnita comes from a communications background, so I think that that helped a lot. Um, but what we do is so very specific and without the language, it's very difficult to paint a picture of what it is we're actually doing in a community intentional. So everything that we do starts with research and reflection first. Every time we work with a community, we have a couple of conversations just about the landscape. What are we walking into? What's the history of this community? Who are the people? Who are the people that are often not seen, not heard? How can we work together equitably, not only with you as our partner, but in this community? What is it that you all need to be successful? What are your goals? And then sometimes depending on the community, we'll actually bring in community members themselves to say, these are the things that we want to see come out of this project. We are very front heavy in terms of the research that we do to better understand the needs of a community before we convene them. And I don't know if that's very common. And so we always want to make sure that people, not only through our action, but through our words, understand that we're trying to be as equitable as possible and really see them and their communities for who they are and add the value that we can. Can you talk a little bit about specifically what you do when you go in and, and walk me through the process? Well, Izzy has five foundational roots and 21 touch points, been tested on about 70,000 people. Marnita started this in her home and it's expanded. We now have about a team of 10 and we do this thing and we teach people how to do it in their communities school districts and communities have now adopted it as the way that they would like to convene people 
Um, a lot of our school districts before working with us were getting only 20 to 30 maybe white families and now they're getting 200 to 250 across difference. Um, we found a way to bring in those who usually don't feel welcomed and don't feel like they are accepted in spaces. Not only do we do this, but we've taught hundreds of other people how to do it now too. Part of the Izzy model is we require that the room be at least 51% immigrant or of color and 25 to 33% under the age of 24. And these people have never met before. This is their first experience. So this is target on steroids, right? Like this is they walk into the room and suddenly their brain, we try and douse them with as much oxytocin and serotonin as possible, even on a really serious conversation. Our mission, as I said, was equity. So one of the things that we talk about, and I think this is where middle-class sort of white organizations that are well-meaning, don't mean to be offensive, but the reality of it is that there's this kind of mentality of all are welcome here. And there's a difference between that and this space was intentionally created with you in mind. And we talk about that a lot. Like if you were in a wheelchair and somebody said, you're welcome here and you got to the place and there were a hundred steps up to the front door, nobody had made it for you to be able to get up those steps with dignity. Um, and then you got there and the handle was all the way at the top. Would that really be you welcoming everybody? Because that's what a lot of spaces are like, right? So they say that people of color are welcome or that they really would like to welcome us. But then it's like, well, you're loud or you told the story too long or like you suddenly start discovering that showing up as your authentic self is not really allowed. You're listening to News in Context. We're talking with Marnita Schradel and Lauren Williams of Marnita's Table. They looked at human brains under, you know, brain scans and discovered that if you felt that you did not belong, it lit up exactly the same part of the brain as being physically punched. Being physically hit, that's how much of an impact if you feel that you're not welcome in your neighborhood or you're not welcome in your community. Well, what happens in a school district, like some of the places where we're going, there's a number called the tipping point. And the tipping point is when any community becomes more than 7% other, it doesn't matter who the dominant culture is or the minority culture. The minority culture is suddenly large enough in the community to be perceived as a threat and to be managed. We have a lot of people who are marginalized and people who come from different backgrounds. We are in rural Minnesota and we have people who are indigenous, incoming immigrants working at the meat packing plant. We have an aging population. So this neuroscience, like how do you make this technology work? How do you bathe brains? What does it look like to do it? Wanna make a guess at who's the best experience engineer in the country? Experience, uh, Disney. Of course. Yeah. And you knew it instantly, didn't you? Oh, yes. So we like to say, if you've been to a Disneyland, if you go to a Target store, you've experienced this technology, why aren't more nonprofits using it? And why aren't more particularly people who are bridging differences using it? And understanding that there is a way, we were doing this conversation called Grow. A number of the people who attended were uh, people who lived in apartments and they were brown and they really wanted to grow things. And I said, I live at the north end of Lake of the Isles. I'll give up part of my yard. One of our other neighbors behind us heard about it. He was seeing the people of color working in our yard that we turned our yard here in this neighborhood into a community garden. And they said, we have room in our yard. Would they like to expand and grow things in our yard? 
And so we're, we are looking to do things that are pretty revolutionary. Like imagine just casually what would happen in a community where all the rich people gave up half of their yards, which are stupid anyway, because they're grass, and had people who didn't have access to land. What would happen for those young people getting jobs? What, what would that look like? Instead of being a program for disadvantaged youth, they would meet them the same place we met them when we grew up in the country, right? And you'd be out growing, planting in the garden after COVID. So we're looking at this very differently. We were talking about the social engineering of neighborhoods and, and how that's affected people. A friend of mine and a former colleague works in San Francisco's Mission District, yep. which you may you may be aware of. I used to work in the Mission. Oh, you did? Um, so for the listeners who might not be aware, it's a heavily Latin, Latinx population. What Richard Raya looked at was the redlining maps of San Francisco and of the Bay Area. And he basically laid those over the COVID-19 impacted areas and they tracked almost exactly. And so it was just a really compelling illustration of the continued impacts of the social engineering that had happened decades ago. And I love you turning this on its head because it's so practical. It's like, let's take this data and information and engineering that we understand works in these other contexts and make it happen in this context. We did an event. Yeah. I'm going to give you a little setup for it. All right. So Carver County is a bedroom suburb of the Twin Cities. And if you know anything about them, they are the original white flight suburbs. Okay. But interesting enough, Carver County is also where Prince was. <laughs> Paisley Park was in Chaska. But it's basically, over the years, been about 3% POC, and it's become about 7%. It's just hit tipping point. Okay. It's a very conservative community. Last year, as white people started noticing that there were more brown people, they formed a group, basically Parents Against Equity. Wait, what? Actually, Parents Against Equity. I did. Oh, my God. Wait. Re for real? Yes. <laughs> Before they expunged everything, and I think they're now on their third name, people of color were being spit on in the community. Carver County, because they had so many, um, and I'm now going to say this, were completely nonpartisan. But in that community, Trump supporters were really bullying non-Trump supporters. It just happened to be that's what was happening in that community. And we wanted to have a, an opening conversation where we said people weren't flying colors, right? So we didn't want all the white people to show up with um, Make America Great Again hats, even though it's their right to do that, because it wouldn't necessarily signal. They were wearing the, them because they were opposed to equity. And the POC were not reading that as, oh, that's just a freedom of choice. It was actually being read as, you'd like to exterminate me. That's not very healthy. Hard to have a conversation when you start there. Hard to have. A, and we had to have a conversation about white supremacists. Like, if you don't believe in equality and inclusion, you probably don't want to be at our table. Um, now, we're not going to force you to believe anything up front, but if you actively wish black and brown people harm, this may not be your room. But most people don't. Most people are kind of clueless, to be honest. So the mayor of Chaska came up at one point and said, I've been telling people of color for years that I didn't see color. And tonight I realized I was erasing your stories, your voices, and your histories. And a young black woman behind me said, damn, all that and dinner. Like she was just like, what the hell did you just do? And it wasn't traumatic. It was, I am getting this now. I'm getting that 
these are your stories. Like I'm erasing your histories. We welcome children of a very young age. They speak in our rooms. They're not just there to be babysat. When we close, we stand in circle and everybody does an exercise where we look at each other. So we actually account for everything. There's a report that comes out about themes or what people think or thought of the event itself. So this is actually more than just a conversation. It's like a sociological study of a community and what their needs are and how they're relating. And so afterwards, like just anybody in the community can download this. And well, in these rooms, normally half the people in each of these groups are people of color. And white people are suddenly like, you've lived in my community for 25 years and I'm acting like you're new here, but it doesn't make them feel terrified. It makes them feel like, wait, we should go. So all the POC and all the white people want to go ice fishing together. That's one community coming together right there. So the mayor, that was a great, beautiful, really incredible story. What about some other people in the community? And I recognize you alluded to this earlier. You can't help everybody. You can't connect everybody. There are people on whatever fringe they're on who are going to stay in their fringe. But for the people that you can reach, the people that you can connect with, I'd love to hear what responses you got from people. Is there anyone who stood out to you or any story that that stood out to you from this event in particular? I mean, there's so many stories that stand out. I had a woman once come up to me and she said, you know, I ended up sitting in with these three black teenage boys who were the age of my sons. And it wasn't until I left that I realized every time I had ever encountered a black teenager, I held my purse closer. And I realized that was just this weird script in my head. I actually wasn't consciously afraid. It was something that had been planted. So that she became intentional and conscious and talked about what the transformation was. That like realizing that as she was walking down the street, instead of acting afraid, she was making eye contact and smiling at young black men. And they were smiling back and saying good day and stopping and asking her name and acknowledging that they were in the same neighborhood, right? So like that kind of thing. When we pull people by generation and all the boomers and the silent generation people are all white, but then the millennials and the Gen Zers are mostly people of color and the older people in the community realize if they don't invest in those young people, it's not a matter of charity. It's they don't have a dentist. They don't have a road. Their community doesn't survive. And so it's a very organic process. That's amazing. Lauren, are there any stories that stand out to you? When we were training um, and, and Izzy, we talked about the importance of the local immigrant-owned caterers having licenses and how that was just one small thing that they didn't even realize they could work with them to do, to get them licenses, get them insurance, that now they all of a sudden could work with all of the event uh, spaces in the community. And so it's really just bringing people together to say, these are the barriers, like how do we collaborate together? And sometimes it's just one small tweak that really impacts someone's life and all of a sudden allows them to lean into the community and be a part of it and benefit from it in ways that they couldn't before because they didn't have those relationships. Yeah. And sometimes it's not about, a lot of times, it's not about like, I hate you or I fear you at all. It's about, oh, I didn't realize or I didn't know. And, and of course, if you're in a privileged position, if you've never experienced it or haven't been exposed to it, it's difficult to know what's going on, but that these people put themselves in a position to learn more. And then, of course, try to connect across these differences. Even like last night's Izzy, I always have the freshest one in my mind. It was a young woman of color um, who we were talking about the future of health and everybody was talking just gosh about 
global issues. And it was really hard for her to lean into the conversation. And I was like, you know what, what can you do, you know, with your family? Is there anything that you can think of? And the the teenagers all of a sudden started saying all of these practical things that none of the adults had talked about. So they started talking about the importance of clothing, the importance of having, you know, a bed, (laughs) the importance of um, making sure that you're taking your medicine and that your parents are taking their medicine, right? Like all these super applicable things that nobody had touched on because we're thinking so far into like changing the world and the youth just brought us back to reality a little bit, right? Like what are those everyday things that we can do? And I think those are, those are usually my favorite moments, uh, in the Izzy where the teenagers and the young people just really, really bring us home, right? Like they just somehow, some way they've been listening this entire time and they know exactly what to say to put the cherry on top. I love it. Would you remember Ariana in Seattle? Ah, yeah. We had a little girl, she was eight years old, young black girl. She was sitting at the table by herself and she looked kind of sad. And I went over and said, what's going on? She said, well, my mom wants a taco, but I want to go, our food is always appropriate for vegan to carnivore and we do a feast. That's one of the touch points, honoring food, food that honors people. So the little girl says, but I want to go to the Neo Soul Food line, but my mom is over getting tacos. And I said, well, you could come with me to the Neo Soul Food line. And she looks at me and I have the mic in my hand and stuff. And she's like, well, my mom might be worried that you'll kidnap me. And I said, well, you can go ask your mom. I'm the facilitator. So it's going to be hard for me to run away with you because I'm going to be on the mic a lot tonight. So she goes and her mom says, okay. And she comes and we get food and she comes back. Well, by the middle of the event, this girl when we do things, we call it sharing power and surrendering the mic. We leave a lot of time for people to really have a conversation in small circle, like an hour. We have time for people to breathe in and out, really think about each other. And we said, choose somebody who's not normally handed the mic at your table to share out. And this little girl is chosen by her table and she gets up and she says, you know, technology is a threat to our health and well-being. I said, well, can you expand on that? She said, well, you know, sometimes we're so busy looking at our our digital devices, we're not paying attention to each other. And she like riffed on it for like a few things. And then afterwards, white men came up and said, I wanted to hire that eight-year-old girl. Like she was so smart. And suddenly it flipped what I thought of what excellence and leadership, but it didn't do it in a way that made them ashamed. It was in a way as though they'd had a blinder on and they took it off. And so we like to say we render the invisible visible in a way that they can actually look at it and it doesn't harm them, but they can see how it helps them. We've been sheltering in place. There's still some physical distancing going on. How is Marnita's table working with that or in that context? We were going to different uh, regions across the country. We were actually flying out and bringing folks together in person um, before we were sheltered in place. We've never done this before, but the community needs this and let's figure it out. So we had our first Dizzy, our first digital Izzy. And for six weeks, the end of March to mid-May, we held conversations every single day on different topics. So one of the topics on Mondays was parenting during the times of COVID. We had a conversation on gratitude and wellness. We decided to keep that conversation every week. So it's Tuesday at 10 o'clock Central Daylight Time. Then we had another conversation about comedy and can we laugh? Is it too soon? Like, can we just enjoy some of this and laugh about it while we're together? 
Uh, and then we also had a global conversation. So Marnita and I looked at all the major cities and the times and tried to see, okay, what would be a time when most people would be awake around the world? And we set it then, uh, and we would have people call in from the Middle East, call in from Europe and India. It was awesome just to see what is it like uh, right now in your community, and do you have any tips for all of us? Now we are holding uh, two to three conversations every night uh, in specific communities, asking them, A, how are you doing? But then B, what do you want to see for your future? Now that you've seen this, what do you want? And is there any way that you see forward, right? Are there things in your communities right now that you think should be highlighted and, and uh, partnerships that you think could be made to create the future that we want to see? Sparking these things in people can hopefully help them connect. Yeah. One other thing that we often say, people talk about cross-cultural competency, but instead we say, well, you can't be competent in someone else's culture. Who's measuring that, right? There is no test. Uh, so it's really about cross-cultural humility and curiosity and understanding, right? It's it's the journey. It's the, those relationships. It's the seeking to know more and wanting to know. Thank you to Marnita Schradel, CEO of Marnita's Table, and Lauren Williams, Marnita's Table's training manager and executive administrator. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on your favorite podcast channel. We're also on Twitter at News in Context SF, and you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening. <laughs>